um, thank you that you're here. Thank you that uh, your presence is guaranteed where your people meet. You say where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. And we praise you, Lord, that that's true. And thank you. And ask you to make your presence felt, Lord God. Speak to us. Uh, quicken our spirits inside, Lord God, that we might know we've heard from you. Um, tell us those things that you want us to take on and um, help us to really understand uh, what we're reading in, in your word. <coughs> Give us wisdom, Lord God, to know how to apply what we hear and what we read. And mostly, Lord, um, help us to love you better. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so we finished last time with, with the truth that God is at work in every believer. That is a fact. He's at work in every believer and he will transform us from glory to glory. Um, and that as disciple makers, uh, the, the only reason to make disciples would be because we want to grow the church, because we believe that the church is God's uh, instrument, if you like, or God's a presence on earth. I think often Christians think about the Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit is some magical influence that floats around in the room from one person to another person. Um, obviously the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and he can do what he likes whenever he likes, but he has chosen to work through believers, primarily to work through believers. So, um, so, when we're making disciples, what we're doing is actually expanding the, um, and enlarging the borders of the work of God through the Spirit. See what I mean? I'm obviously, I'm not limiting him by that, but, but he has chosen to do that. So, we long for the growth of the church, and so, in order for the church to grow, what has to happen? We have to make disciples. You have to make disciples, yeah, but how, how are you going to make disciples? What's the first thing about making disciples? Who makes disciples? God, God. Disciples make disciples. <coughs> disciples make disciples. The Holy Spirit makes disciples through us. So if you're not a disciple yourself, you can't make disciples. You know, you can talk about Jesus and you can talk about God, but if you're not following Jesus, you're no good to anyone else, really. Because... Discipleship, God has so designed it that the best way to disciple is for real life to be lived out with one another. So all of your weakness, all of your failings, all of your difficulties, all of your troubles are to be talked about, laid, out, laid bare for everyone to see, but not stopped with the troubles and the difficulties, to move on and say through those troubles and difficulties, through the ordinary trials of life, I have victory in Christ Jesus. That's the thing. A lot of Christians, we get together, we share all the bad stuff, we talk about all our bad stuff, we put our arms around each other, and that's all good. That's all good. But if we don't have victory in the end, we are no different to any other group in the world. There has to be victory in Christ. So in order for you to be an effective disciple-maker, in order for me to be an effective disciple-maker, I need to be able to share weaknesses and difficulties and everything else. But I have to share the fact that I have victory in Christ over those things, mm. through those things. Without the victory, I, I don't encourage anybody. And that's the problem uh, often in the church. We spend a lot of time talking about the things that we have gone through, and I think that's important. But uh, we don't have much uh, 
uh, we don't talk very much about victory because we don't experience it very often. <coughs> and that's the thing. So, uh, in this session, I really want to look at what we do when we're discipling people who seem to make no progress in their Christian life. How do we handle uh, that disappointment? Um, and how did Paul handle it? Because Paul writes most about discipleship in the New Testament, and so how did he handle it? And I think he gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5, and on into 6 and 7, but we're going to look at 4 and 5 today. Um, so we're going to read through 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. They're not too long, the chapters, so we're just going to read right through from... 4, 1 to 5 to the end of 5. So could you just read fairly fast so that we so that we get through it? I don't mean read fast, I mean not long back breaks between people <coughs> reading the verses. So somebody start and then we'll go on. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, do not lose heart. For we have renounced the hidden things of shame not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by, manifesting, but by manifestation of the truth, mending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, mm. and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earth and vessels, so that the, the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body, in the body, not always carrying about in the body the dying of Christ, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly, sorry, this is a difficult one. Yeah, no, go ahead, it's fine. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, and life in you. And because we have the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believed, and therefore I have spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he which hath raised up the Lord Jesus Christ shall raise us up also by Jesus, and shall set us with you. For all things are for your sake, that most plenteous grace by the thanksgiving of many may rebound to the praise of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, I love that. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working us 
sorry, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. <coughs> for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, when we die and leave these bodies, we will have a home in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself, and not by human hands. We, we grow weary in our present bodies, and we long for the day when we will put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will not be spirits without bodies, but will put on new heavenly bodies. Our dying bodies make us groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and have no bodies at all. We want to slip into our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by the everlasting life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. Therefore, being always of good courage, I know that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we will walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you. Okay, towards the end of those chapters, Paul uses the word reconciliation. He talks about a ministry of reconciliation. Um, what does the word reconciliation mean? Bring together. Yeah, to bring together. Has a 
specific um, brought back we, into fellowship. Yeah, it means that we use that further. That's the extent of it. But the actual word reconciliation means to bring into harmony, mm -hmm. to, harmony to be to, to harmonise. And Paul writes that um, because he knows that the death of Jesus made it possible for people to live in harmony with God. And uh, he knew that uh, Christ's death and resurrection made forgiveness possible, made grace available, and made it possible for us to live as friends of God. Um, in Romans chapter 5, he says, um, uh, the first 11 verses, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So all of those, um, I mean, they're quite, in, in the New American Standard <coughs> Version, they're quite wordy and difficult to understand. But what Paul's saying is that there are that there is a reconciliation that we are brought into when we believe in Jesus. You are now reconciled to God and you are able to live in harmony with him. You're in right standing with God and so you can live in harmony. But he does not assume that all Christians live in harmony with God because he's writing to the Corinthians and he he's writing to them as believers and he says at the end of chapter 5, I beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Now, why is he writing that to believers who are already reconciled to God? <coughs> Once you put your trust in Jesus, you are reconciled to God. So why would Paul have to write to this church, I beg you, I, I beseech you, be reconciled to God? So that's the question. Why is he writing to them to beg them to be reconciled to God? Because they're not living in harmony with God. So he's not saying to them, he's not writing to unbelievers saying you need to be reconciled to God, you need to receive Christ, you need to receive the Spirit. He's writing to people who have been reconciled to God to, through Jesus, who have received the Spirit of God, but who are not living like it. And actually, in that way, he could write to 90% of the church across all time. That's the problem that we haven't really understood that making disciples involves being disciples and being a disciple involves living in harmony with God. And so in order to make disciples, we have to show by our lives, Christians have to show by our lives, that it is possible to be transformed, that we are changing from moment to moment, from day to day, that we do experience God in our everyday life 
and that we have this wonderful relationship with God. Not a relationship of fear, not a relationship of a big stick and a rule book, but a relationship that we love and that is changing us. Well, I mean, honestly, don't look around the room because, of course, we're all, this room's filled with people like that. <laughs> uh, think about, think about the church as a whole. Think about the church, especially in the Western world. Is that the witness of the church? Is that the witness that we have a whole body of people who love God, who long to live for his glory, who love each other, who live in harmony with God? So Rosie talked about singing this morning. She talked about harmonising, how beautiful the sound. Is the sound of the church beautiful? Honestly, really, is it? And so is it any wonder that people are leaving the church in their thousands? Is it really any wonder that we are not having significant amounts of people? I mean, think about the state of the world. Think about how much fear there is in people. How, how much confusion and chaos. This would be a time when people are flocking to God. Flocking to the church of God. But they're not. They are in some parts of the world, but they're not here. And why is that? Is it that God is not God here, but he is in Africa or China? No, it's that Christians don't live in harmony with God. We just do not live in harmony. And, and I think there are many reasons for that, but one of the main reasons is I think we've been, never been taught that that's what we're supposed to do. I think most Christians don't understand that. But there is an experiential element to this harmony, this reconciliation. That, yes, you know, you have your ticket to heaven, to eternity, but there's so much more. There's so much more to love the God than the ticket into heaven. And that's what Paul is going to talk to these Corinthians about. And it's really interesting to me how he talks to them about it. Because when you read 1 Corinthians, that church is not one you'd want to join. You know, I mean, they are messing up big time. He writes in the first letter, it's even reported that someone has his father's wife. He talks to them in chapter 6 about fornication and immorality and homosexuality and thievery and all of those other things. So you know that's going on in the church in Corinth. But he writes to them as if they're believers and he writes to them and talks to them about the fact that God will transform believers. That there's no doubt that he will transform believers. And I think that's, I find that really interesting because if I were going to write to the Corinthians, I'd be writing saying, don't you think you ought to shape up? You know, you're in a pagan culture, you're a witness of God, don't you think you should get your life sorted? Really? And if, if Paul were going to write to me, I would expect that sort of letter. You know, don't you think really? I mean, like, why are you still doing that <coughs> stuff? But he doesn't. He writes a very uh, encouraging letter to them. And it's interspersed with things that he, he thinks that he, he might tell them, you've got to give up this and take up that. But it is mostly a very encouraging letter. So I want to know, how can I be encouraging of the people that I'm discipling who are not living the way that I think or, or the way that God wants them to live. How can you maintain that? And I, as I say, I think he does it really well in this letter, obviously, because God inspired it. And, and I think, actually, if you look first at 
what's the environment he puts in his letter, what's the kind of overall tone of his letter, you could say there are two things that he really wants to tell them are absolutely they can be assured of. And the first one he lists in, he talks about in chapter 5, verse 14 to 21. Uh, he starts off in chapter 5, verse 14, and he says, uh, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. What is the first characteristic of a disciple of Christ and a, <coughs> um, a, a discipler, someone who makes disciples? They love. They love. They love. With what sort of love? God's love. With God's love. What sort of love is God's love? If you had to give a word for it, what is it? Agape. It's agape, yeah. That's, you know too much. So what's in the, in the language of a non-believer? Sacrificial. Sacrificial. Sacrificial and unconditional love. That's what we, it's unconditional love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't give his only begotten son for those... Um, he didn't only give, his, only give Jesus for those who would believe. Mm. He gave Jesus for the whole world, mm. which means there are no conditions here. It, he, it, giving Jesus wasn't conditional on anything at all. It was a gift of God because he loved the world. That's his love. He loves unconditionally. And that's what Paul tells us and tells those Corinthians, in order to be an effective disciple maker, in order to be an effective disciple you have to be assured of unconditional love. Because if you think that your failure to behave is going to affect the love of God to you or the person who's discipling to you, you will be afraid to fail. You'll never try because you'll be afraid of losing that love. So the love that he talks about here is unconditional love. He says it's the love of Christ that controls us. The love of Christ. Where there's any uncertainty at all about love, there's always fear. There's always fear and anxiety. If you are not certain that your spouse loves you, you live in fear that you're going to put a foot wrong and they're going to be gone. If you're a child who's not sure of his parents' love, he will be afraid. That fear may come out in rebellion, I'm not saying it's, it always comes out in the same way, but he will be afraid and he will never reach the full potential of his life because he has always been afraid that he will lose your love. And, and Paul knows that. So he knows when he writes to these people, he must tell them there is no, no possibility that God will stop loving you. You have put your trust in Jesus. You are God's child. God is a God of unconditional, overwhelming love. He loves you for eternity, and whatever you do, he will still love you. That's the opposite of what we do as Christians. We judge. Yes, it's the opposite. It's the opposite of what we do. It's, that's why it's so striking, <coughs> really, for Paul, that he goes out of his way to this church in Corinth. I mean, you could think if he wrote to the Thessalonians, you could say, oh yeah, of course he's going to write that, because they're doing so brilliantly. But to write this to the Corinthians, it's just amazing. So, so first of all, unconditional love. And then the second kind of, I want to say like, um, what do you call it? Uh, fragrance of discipleship. The second 
certainty, this, the second assurance that he has to give them and he does give them is he is confident. He is confident that God who began a good work in them will see it through to the day of completion. See it through to completion on the day of Christ. He is absolutely confident that they will become like Jesus. Absolutely, totally confident. And as I say, you could say, well, you're sure. I mean, he, you could imagine him writing that to the Thessalonians, back to the Corinthians, oh my goodness. So think of all the Christians you know. Think of all the mess-ups they do. <laughs> think of the length of time they've been Christians and how far they are from where you think they might be. Look at yourself and think how far you are from where you think you should be. <coughs> and then hear Paul say, or God say through Paul, but you will finish, God will finish in you what he began. And that his love will never fail. Paul uses those two things to build up his kind of teaching to them. And it's on that basis that he's, I think, God's telling us that's how we disciple. So you can't go into discipling other people if you think there is any judgment in that role. There's no judgment. None. There's encouragement, there's instruction, there's um, help, there's exhortation, it's all those things, but there is no judgment. So how could Paul then, let's ask the question, how could Paul be confident that these believers would um, be completed, would be finished, <coughs> would become what God wanted them to become, would succeed. How could he be confident that they would succeed? What did he base his confidence on? What God can do. Yeah, what God can do. He didn't base his confidence on their behaviour. He actually took out their behaviour from the equation and he totally came at this with, I am basing my confidence on the God who lives within us. It was nothing to do with the person. Nothing to do with them. And, and if you read 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, it kind of, it's, it's a strange sentence, but look at what he says. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has shone his light in each believer. And you have seen the face of Christ. And because he knows that God is the one who did that, he knows for sure that ultimately God is going to change every single believer. So, yeah. And at the same time, he knows that you, in and of yourself, will hardly see it. Because in the very next verse he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What happens when you, um, when you put your trust in Jesus and you start to go along the road of discipleship, let's say, learning about God, trying to live for his glory, doing all of those things that you know to do, going to church, try, you know, doing your part in being a Christian. What happens generally? I mean, lots of things happen, but what's one thing that might happen? The full stage. Say that again. You develop a bit of a false skin, perhaps? Yes, maybe. <coughs> That's not where I'm going, so we won't go there tonight, but maybe. 
uh, where I'm going is, the, more, the longer you are a Christian, the more you are aware of how far you are from where you want oh, to be. Yes. That's true. That's the reality. Yeah. yeah. You, you, what happens is, you start, in the beginning, you know you didn't deserve salvation. To, to whatever degree you understand that, you get, you get it. You, you need a saviour. His name is Jesus. I don't deserve that salvation. Wow, it's amazing. Thank you, God. And then you start walking along with God, and ostensibly closer to God. And the closer you get to bright light, the more muck you see. Because that just happens. So you see all this muck. And you deal with the first layer, then you walk on a bit. Then God deals with the second layer. Then you walk on a bit. And you expect, finally, to come to the bottom. There's no more layers. But actually, the longer you walk with God, the more layers you find. And this muck just seems to continue. And you start to get to that stage where you think, well, I thought I was going to be totally transformed by now. I mean, I've been a Christian 25 years. You mean there's still stuff? And the answer is yes. Now, if I'm going to look at my life 25 years on and think there's still stuff to be changed in me, there are still issues and, and things that I don't do well with, if I base my salvation on my behaviour, I was dead 10 years ago. And I'm still dead. If my behaviour is the reckoning, then I'm, I'm lost. And that's what Paul knows. We cannot judge anything on our behaviour. Of course, our behaviour matters. But if God lives in me, I will be like Christ. So if that's true, if Andy will be like Christ because the Holy Spirit lives in him, so he may not feel much like Christ today. He may feel like he's messed up today and tomorrow and the next day. But if the absolute stonewall guarantee is he will be like Jesus, what does that leave him free to do? And be? He can be totally real with God. He can be totally real with us. Because he knows that, he knows that, he knows that, he knows. He's loved unconditionally and he will one day be like Christ. When he sees Jesus, he will be like him. Now that should make us all do two things. It should make us all say, hallelujah, praise God. Oh my goodness, how can I help you along with this work? Because I so want to be like Jesus and I want to be there quickly. That should be one of the responses and that's the response Paul expects. He expects you to hear this and to say, that's what I want. Oh, that's what I want. Thank you, God, that that's going to happen because that's what I want. And the second thing is, I've forgotten for a moment, but it will come back to me. So, yeah, so um, it should give you the desire to check yourself out and see, first of all, do you want to be like Jesus? I mean, you know, forget all the people you know, forget all the people who think you're a Christian, forget every single other thing and ask yourself the question, do I really, really want to be like Jesus? How much do I want to be like Jesus? How important is it to me to please God? Because what Paul's saying is, you will be. Now, how important is that? How, how does that make you feel? How does it make, what, what does it do to the desires of your heart? Because what Paul's expecting is for you to say, oh gosh, it's like, how could that possibly be true? 
Not just that you saved me and pulled me out of the mess of my life, but that you will do all of this on top of it. And, and we would be, we should be thinking, we do think, Paul's expecting us to think, wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. I want to go along with that work. It's in this letter, with this background, he will say in chapter 13, verse 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. This is the acid test. God loves you unconditionally. He has promised if you have his spirit, you will be transformed. So ask yourself, do you want to be transformed? Do you really want to be transformed? And in your own life, over the course of time, can you see transformation at work? If there is no transformation in your thinking, in your desires, in your anything, if there is absolutely no change in your life, then you are almost certainly not a believer. And that's what he wants to bring them to. Not because of judgment, but because he, he's, he does not want anyone to think they're a believer and not be one. And so he's trying to set this stage of God loves you with an unconditional love. If you have his spirit, he will transform you. Don't worry when you fail. Don't worry when you fall. Don't get caught up in any of the stuff you're still doing. Don't worry about any of that, because if you have the Holy Spirit, you will be transformed. But at the same time, he's expecting you to look at your life and say, so if that's true, if it's true that God lives in me and I'm changed, well, am I really changed? And if I'm not really changed, what does that mean? That must mean God doesn't live in me. And if God doesn't live in me, I am not saved. Do you see what I mean? So instead of coming at it with, with the, well, you're not doing this and you're not doing that and you're not doing the other thing, he comes at it from the other side. And he says, wow, this is so amazing. It's so amazing. Now look at yourself. He's writing to them as if, as, as if they're Christians. And he says, doesn't he, he says, um, I don't, can't remember now if it was here or whether it was in Romans, uh, it might have been in Romans 5, where he says that we've been reconciled to God. 5, yeah, I know it's 1 to 11, but he, uh, yeah, so verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul knows the resurrection power of Jesus. He knows that. Not simply because he was justified and, and, and caught up and saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. That was just the beginning. He knows the power of God, the power of Christ in his life. How does he know that? How does he know? How has he experienced the power of Christ? That's the question. He is completely given over to him. And? He's welcomed it, and... Yeah, it's all true, that's true. That's, that's perfectly right. And take it just one step further. Look at... Uh, did you have to read... I think I asked you to read... Did I... Um, yes, you did read chapter 4. We read it. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. You see what he does? We are um, we're perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. He'll go through this whole list of things 
Every single person experiences affliction. They experience crushing. They experience perplexion. But they, what he's saying is, that hasn't done me in. I'm still standing. I'm still standing, and I'm still standing in power because I have a God who leads me through all of this to victory. That's what we need to know. We need to know that. We need, we need to be teaching other believers this, that, that this is true for every single believer. And it is a lie straight from the enemy of our soul when he gets us to this dis- desperation, this, this despair, where it looks like we have no hope and we can't <coughs> do anything. He gets us to that point. We have to know the reality of who God is to be able to say, no, my God will not leave me here. Just yesterday, I heard, uh, she's not a friend of mine, but she's a very, very good friend of a very, very good friend of mine, a woman, and she jumped off a bridge in Israel. She's a Christian. She killed herself. Because she got to a point in her life when the despair was so great she just couldn't, she didn't, she didn't, couldn't find a way out. Now, I mean, she's a Christian. She knows God. She's living in Jerusalem, her, the place she wanted to live her whole life. But the enemy of our soul is at work all the time. Yeah. And he is at work to get us to not believe the truth about ourselves and about God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter where you are. Have you believed in Jesus? You have his spirit. You will be transformed. And you will one day stand face to face with Jesus and you will be like him. We have to teach this message. We have to let people know this is true because life is getting harder and harder and harder and harder and people are falling because they are judging their life, their Christianity, their belief on their own behaviour. They're failing so many times. They're in despair and no one is coming to them and saying, this is who your God is. Hang on, let's walk together. Let's go through this together because your God will not fail you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He loves you with an everlasting love. There is nothing you could ever do to lose that love. We have to be teaching that to people. We have to be sharing that with one another. That is so much more important than the rule book. You know, we've got these great rule books. We've got to do this and we've got to do that. We've got to be this and be that. And all the time God is saying... You are my beloved child. I love you with a love that you cannot imagine. And I will bring you to glory if you will just hold my hand and walk with me. I could cry about this woman. You know, this woman who realized her dream to go to Israel and to live in Israel and and to live in Jerusalem and work in Jerusalem. She's a Christian Jew, a Messianic Jew from Australia, she was. And she jumped off a bridge on Sunday because she couldn't find her way through the despair she was in. I mean, it's a tragedy. People dream about Jerusalem, but it's a tough system. Yes, it is, and I think that's what she was finding. I, don't, I mean, she's, a, she's a, a very good friend of a very good friend of mine, so 
I only know this second hand, but um, you know what Paul does in this letter, where he's writing to these Christians who are doing a terrible job of being Christians. They're really struggling in their sin. They're really struggling to come out of it. And he doesn't make light of their sin at all. He just reminds them of the truth of who they are. And that's what we have to do. You want to make disciples? You want to lead people to Jesus? You have to show them the victory they can have in Christ Jesus. Not that everything in their life will be wonderful. It won't be. And actually, I think this life is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. We are are in the very last of the last days, and it will get worse. You only have to look at our world and see. I mean, 20 years ago, you couldn't even have imagined what's happening in our world today. But then that runs the the thread, doesn't it, that's very strong, that because of those things that are written about, we're near the end. So there's that hope. Oh, definitely, but but that's what I'm saying. We have to know the hope. Because if, and I think most Christians don't. They don't. You know, we do, you know, you and I, we've been studying how long? 12 years together? We know the truth. We know the hope. We know because we know the word. We know what's happening. And we, it's always surprising if you're sitting beside a Christian you don't know, or yeah. just me, and you talk like this, and they say, yes, we know. You know, I met one who said, well, actually, our son is thinking, not too bothered about his children's education because they get raptured. Yeah, that's very unusual, though. Really? It's very, very, very unusual. You look around the church in our country, you will not find that talked about. You won't. You'll talk about. You'll find talked about. God wants you healthy, and and, and we're going to save the world for Christ. Mm-hmm. We're going to change the world for Jesus, and then He'll come back. You, you, all of that is the predominant, prevailing teaching, and. And, and that's why. That's why we have young people cutting themselves all over the place. That's why the hospitals are full of them. That's why we have suicide rates that are off the scale. That's why. Because people have no hope. Christians have no hope. And they have no hope because no one says to them, this is your God and this is what he promises. And you will be like him and you will know victory. You might be crushed. Uh, sorry, you might be afflicted in every way, but you won't be crushed. Reminds me that I just saw an Instagram about something <coughs> about St. Peter's in Brighton, and they said, Oh, well, the volume, the worship volume turned up high. And I was sort of thinking, That's what they're doing to yes. cover up, mm, yes. they're turning the volume up high so that they can't yes. think yes. because they're not grounded in the word. Mm. Exactly. So that when the troubles come, they're not going to be able to stand because they've been able there and that's a tragedy actually it's a tragedy on so many levels but just individually it's a tragedy because that means that there are people out there who have put their trust in Jesus and they never ever find out that Jesus saves not just from eternal death he saves in this life he saves us and he makes us whole and healthy and strong and able to cope even in the darkest situations he helps, he does that and um, yeah, and I think Paul wrote, writes this letter so that they understand that, that they understand. Your life's not where you want it to be. You look a bit of a mess, even to yourself. You look a bit of a mess, but take courage. Take courage. You're going to be transformed from glory to glory. Now, of course, you could sit there and say, well, maybe some of them aren't Christians. And I think he knows that some of them aren't Christians. That's true in any church in the land, in any land. You go into it, there'll be people there who, who, 
who look like a Christian, who talk like a Christian, but actually they're not Christians. So, but for Paul, that doesn't matter. Because what he's saying is, have you believed in Jesus? Then he's given you his spirit. And if you have his spirit, oh my goodness, you're not going to stay the same. It's just like a fact. So he doesn't even have to bother about, are you a believer, aren't you a believer? He just says it like it is. If God lives in you, how could you stay the same? I know I'm repeating that. I know I'm repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And I know it's 8 o'clock and it's getting late and everyone's tired. But honestly, we must talk about this change, this transformation. And we must talk about it in terms of what God does rather than what we have to do. We have to talk about the fact that how could God live in me and me be the same as I was? It's impossible. I do think a lot of people are changing, but they don't think Yes, definitely. Yeah. I do. Definitely. And that's why Paul's saying it. You will be changed. That's yeah. where we need to encourage one another, yes. isn't it? That's it. Yes. You know, to tell each other, yes. I love what the Lord is doing in your life. I can see this because I think that's an encouragement yes. to us to do the same to somebody yes, else. Yes, definitely. Look at what he says at the end of chapter 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things, look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He gives them, this is how you do it. You keep your eyes on the things that are eternal rather than on the things that will change around about you, the things that will die, the things that are going to be moved out of place. Mm. What are the uh, eternal things? What are eternal things that we can keep our eyes on? Because he's going to go on in chapter 5 to tell us what they are. the end of chapter 4, he says, everything that's of this world changes. Everything of this world, children grow up, houses fall down, the grass grows, it gets mowed, the seasons come, they change, they go. Everything in this world changes, but the things about eternity never change. They never change. You can bank your life on eternity and you must keep your eyes <coughs> fixed on eternity. Not because you, you, you're not going to live in this world, you have to live in this world. But you have to be sure of where you're headed. Otherwise you won't want to move. You'll be standing still. So what are the eternal things that he says to fix your eyes on? Chapter 5, just from verse 1 on. What's the first eternal thing to fix your eye on? Basically the building we have from God. Yeah, you have an eternal home. Jesus said, didn't he? I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am you might be also. John 14. So we have an eternal home. We have an eternal home. We are headed for heaven, whatever that looks like. We're going to live with God forever. And that, that includes our having a new body. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Exactly. Yeah. The new oh my point. gosh, you can't be saying that yet. My goodness. <laughs> We will have a new body and it will match our new spirit and it will match the new soul that we have which has been transformed into the image of Christ. When we see him, 1 John chapter 2, I think it is, verse 2 says, we do not yet know what we will be like, but we do know that when we see him, we will be like him. 
We'll be like him, not just in our spirit. We'll be like him in our soul, in our character, because we will have been transformed into his image. It's such a big thing for some of us to comprehend. Yes, it? Mm. it is. You know, you want to, you know that it's true. You want to comprehend it. Yeah. But it's yeah. elusive It's hard to hold on to. Yeah, so that's why we've got to train our minds to do it, and we have to train our minds, because it's not instinctive. We don't instinctively do this. Look at what he said at the end of chapter 5. From now on, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. If you, are a new, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Therefore, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. What he means is, Paul could walk into this room, and you would be a room full of believers. And he wouldn't care where you came from, or who you were, or what your life was like now, actually. Because he would know eternity. I'm going to spend eternity with these folk. Really? And, 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 and we're all going to be like Jesus. And that'll be fabulous, because he's fabulous. So it didn't matter to him, were you a bookkeeper, were you a road sweeper, were you a slave or free, were you male or female, Jew or Gentile? It made no difference. You were now a child of God, part of his family. That's how he saw you. And when we see Christ... Chapter 5, just to make sure that he, he, he preaches the full counsel of God, he says to them, we will all stand before the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ, mm -hmm. and have to give account of what the deeds done in the body. Mm -hmm. So he's not saying to them, oh, everything's fine, do what you like, live how you like. He's saying it matters how you live. But be sure you will stand before Christ and be transformed. Okay, so, you have a heavenly home. What's the second thing that he talks about in chapter 5? The eternal thing that he tells them about. Verse 11 and verse 12. He talks about himself, actually, but we too have that same ministry. He says he has a ministry of, um, of reconciliation. He's talked about the ministry of reconciliation, but he's going to say that he, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, and, but are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are manifest also in your conscience. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Can you see what he's doing? He's saying, your heart is being changed. Your appearance may look the same, but your heart is being changed if you are of Christ. For the love of it, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He's not talking about the reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation that he's been given, as I said earlier. This is not about bringing people to Christ. This is about encouraging them to live in harmony with Christ. Um, and that's why he says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, or as ambassadors for Christ, as if God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Um, can you see what he does in these verses? He's saying, we don't look at the external we trust that God is at work on the inside. And we trust that God is at work on the inside based on the promise of God. 
that you will be changed. We don't look. Um, uh, therefore, we, we, from now on, we recognise no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Be reconciled to God. Live in harmony. And it is that goal of leading others into this life of harmony with God that Paul's got in mind when he says, I beg you, we beg you, be reconciled to God. And he could be totally honest as he criticises their behaviour in some places, like he says about his, even reported a man who's his father's wife, and you're doing these things. He can be totally honest with them because he's already set up the foundation. You are loved unconditionally by God. I love you unconditionally. I know God will work this out in you. But I can tell you what you're doing right now, that's not the way to help him along with it. It's nice, isn't it, to hearing it like that? It's like you have to check your foundations every now and then. Yeah. Because when a storm comes, that's the sensible thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. See, think about it. If you most try to motivate someone by standing over them with a big stick, you know, you can make people do what you tell them to do if you hit them hard enough. Controller. Yes, Controller. it is. But you'll never change their heart. And Paul knows that it's the heart change that God's interested in. So it doesn't really matter how you, you try to tell people what to do or beat them into submission or, any, or bribe them. Only God can change the heart. And he has promised he will. So um, Paul was confident that that was happening in these believers. And so he was totally free to tell them some things which you'll go into in chapter 6. He's going to talk to them about not receiving the grace of God in vain. He's going to say to them, look, this unconditional love and this sure foundation that you will be changed, that would be creating in you a desire to go along with the work of God. So how much are you going along with the work of God? It's possible to grieve the Spirit. It's possible to quench the Spirit. It's possible to stop His work in your life, deliberately. Those things are all possible. But why would you do that? If you've had a glimpse of what is going to happen to you, if you've had a glimpse of what you will be like, and as I say, he says in chapter 13, uh, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So, he loves them, therefore he urges them, do not receive this grace of God in vain, do whatever is necessary. You see, God has decided that the transforming work that goes on by his spirit, you have to be involved in. I mean, I would never have decided that. Would you? You just said, oh no, I'm just going to transform them because it will take them way too long. <laughs> you know, and we'll be going over the same stuff time and time and time again. So you would never have done it that way, but God always does things the opposite way around. He has decided we will be involved in our sanctification. Why? Why would he do that? Yeah, it teaches us to rely on him and... Yes, and that's true. Understand yeah, and what's the effect outwardly? Why, why do we have to be involved in the sanctification of our souls? Because we're free to make choices. Yeah, we're free to make choices. What for others? For others, absolutely. 
Because I know now, when I'm talking to you, and you come to me and say, I'm really struggling with this. Oh, well, I never struggle with anything, because, I mean, God's totally changed me. Well, what good is that to you? Yes. What good is that? I no good. To, I think I'd want to Yes, exactly. <laughs> Sorry about that. But that's okay. But exactly. I'm no help to anybody no. if I'm just going to say, well, yeah, it's all been done. Yeah. You know. And so I, I met someone on Sunday and she said, I can't really help people with their marriages because I know that God just brought us together. Do you think that's bad? No. Well, I do, actually. I do. It's not helpful. I mean, it's not helpful. No, it's people not struggle helpful. in their marriages all the time. Yes. People are struggling. Marriage is breaking up and it's under attack. So I need someone to say to me, yeah, I know, marriage is tough. It's really hard. And I really struggled in my marriage many times, but thank God he brought us through. That's what I need to know. That's what I want to hear from people. I don't want to hear your marriage is perfect all the time. Or well, that your marriage is rubbish. Or that your marriage no. is rubbish <coughs> as Christians. Yeah, go ahead. Dude. It's like I heard on Sunday this woman say, I think I did absolutely everything wrong as a mother. So this counsellor said, well, did you beat your children? She says, probably the only thing I didn't do. <laughs> but she was being honest. Yes. I mean, and I thought, gracious me, that's amazing. It actually made me feel much better because the mistakes I made, <laughs> yeah. we yeah. all have made. Yeah. yeah, you know, I thought, oh, that's comforting. Mm. Yes. But even more so to have the end of that story, which is, yeah. but God has, look mm. at my children because this is what God has done yeah. when I... You know, I didn't in spite of my face. Yeah, yeah, in spite of it. <coughs> what we need, we really need the reality of life. On our own, we would all fail all the time. Yes. Mm. And if we managed to do some things right for a while, we wouldn't continue for our lifetime. We all make mistakes, we all fall over, we all fail all the time. Mm. We need to be real with people to say, if not for God, oh my goodness. Mm. If not for the strength of God, if not for the power of God, if not for this, if not for his work in me, that's where I would be. Because mm. yeah. it doesn't help me otherwise. Go ahead, Debbie. What I was just going to say, it's so easy to be flippant. And sometimes if you do say to somebody that you're struggling and, and they want to pray with you and it becomes very flippant, yes. it's not real. And it, yeah. it's actually so unhelpful. Yes, exactly. Very unhelpful. Yeah. Exactly. Because you, you feel condemned. Yes. You know, it's just exactly. a prayer and it's all fixed. It's yeah. not. No, yeah. quite exactly. often. That's it. And that's really, no, thank you, because that's what discipleship is. It's not a quick fix. It's, God doesn't fix you quickly and you can't fix someone else quickly. Discipleship is walking together. It's walking together. And it's, it's, it's negotiating the bumps in the road. Do you know what I mean? There's always bumps in the road. Always. And God has deliberately left them there so that we have to come to him for the map, either around it or over it or through it. We have to come to him. And he then promises that we'll get through this. We'll get over this bump in the road. We'll do it together. And then I can share that with you. And you can share it with me. So the next time I see a bump, it looks a bit like Maria's bump in the road. And I can say, oh, oh, Maria, what did you do? You know, when God, oh yeah, you prayed, that's right, and God will do this, and God will do that. And, and so we go on together. That's what discipleship is, and that's what Paul's doing. Now that takes time, it takes effort, and it takes real humility. Because who really wants to tell other people the truth about their lives? They, they're absolutely amazed, actually. Mm. They really are, because I work with a lot of homeless drug addicts. And they were absolutely amazed. 
because they didn't realise that actually, but for the grace of God, and that's exactly yeah. what I said, that I would have become a drug addict yeah. because it was all around me. In fact, the, the boy I was going out with was a heroin addict. Yeah. And they were absolutely amazed. And I said, God gave me a heart yeah. for you because, but for the grace of God, I could, I, I could I could be yeah. where you are. Yeah. And that really spoke to them. Yeah. And it made them accept me much more. Yeah. And I'm able to talk to, you, to them about Jesus. Mm. Yes. I haven't got very far yet, but, <laughs> no, but we keep on talking. I was with a group of them in Coventry and they were very thankful. They were really thankful and really joyful because they'd come from the depths of despair to experiencing the joy in Jesus. Mm. And so many people who are in the churches have not had that experience, mm. that rescue plan. Mm. I can't help keep thinking about the woman who jumped off the bridge. Mm. I can't help thinking about that. Mm. Why? What, what do you think? Why, what do you think, Anne? Well, I, I don't know the full story. I don't know the full story. We can't imagine. I mean, no. yeah. Because I think that they, they, in the bottom of their hearts, they think that there's a way out, and they should know what it is, and, mm. and that they have the answer, and they haven't done it, or they haven't mm. found it, or it's all their fault, isn't it? Mm. I think that maybe. I don't, I don't know this, you know, particularly this specific circumstance. Mm. But it, to do that, you have to and that's the work of the enemy. Just that is that. absolutely that's the work of the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, a similar thing happened to me about a month ago, I suppose, and the, and the lady jumped off the boat. She, you know, she took a hope dose. But there was absolutely no sign at all. And one feels, uh, the question is, could I have done anything? Or, you know, so well, that's relative. Yes. Yeah. I, ha I, I don't mind saying uh, sharing this, but uh, my own son tried to take his life when he was 16. And um, when we've sort of gone back, not necessarily with him, but with his brother, to just try and analyse what brought that up, it was because he, he knew he had done something that wasn't right, and he thought we wouldn't understand, and that then he would be blamed. And so it's, I think people feel that they're, nobody's going to understand where they are yes. and that where they are isn't right, so that's all their fault. <coughs> and it's a total condemnation that comes upon them, and a terrible which is brought by the enemy. That is the enemy. It is the enemy. Because he didn't <coughs> believe that his mum and dad would accept him. Yes. He thought he was in trouble. And that was the only way out. Yeah. But God. But, he, but God testament. protected him. He didn't, you know, obviously. He didn't die. Um, Anyway, it's, yeah, so, yeah, let's move on from that. What Paul does is he says to them, these things are true about you. It, if you have the, uh, the Holy Spirit in you, you will be changed. You will be. You can be sure of God's unconditional love. But he had to write this to them. They didn't automatically know it. That's the thing. They didn't automatically know it. So we have to pass this on. We have to tell people. We have to tell people because they don't automatically know it. It's Believers automatic don't automatically. Well, I, I just think it's not instinctive because we do, we are so judgmental of ourselves, yeah. actually. And also, um, as I say, the, more, the closer you get to Christ, the more you think about Jesus, the less you like yourself. Mm -hmm. And so there's this thing going on. Um, so we have to be sure that we, we live in the truth of this for ourselves and that we talk about it and live in front of other people the way this is. 
So that takes sacrifice. It takes being real and it takes sacrifice. In order to disciple someone, you have to spend a lot of time with them. You know, we're not just giving them the gospel and making them Christians. We're actually spending, living life with them. With all its ups and downs and all its bumps in the road, we have to walk together. And that's, that just takes sacrifice. And, and Paul can say in the Philippian letters, he, he can say, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the service of your faith. And he, he was fine about it. Paul's whole life was one of being poured out for other people's faith. And it means separation. <coughs> you can't disciple people without separating yourself from other things. It's impossible to have the time to do it. <coughs> so, so think about it. Making disciples, what does that mean? What does it mean to make a disciple? Walking with them. Yeah, with right. So what won't you separate from? What the world and all the yeah. distractions. And, and yourself. What exactly, you what you want. Mm. Yes. What you want. I need my own time. I, I need a bit of me time. It's like when the phone rings and you're just in the middle of dishing up or something. Somebody mm. really needs to talk. Mm. You have to sense that they need it. And stop what you're doing. Um, and listen to them. Yeah, mm. and it's not. I mean, we don't <coughs> instinctively do that either. We have this self-preservation oh. thing going on in mm. us. You know, we, we, we need our space. I'm a big space person. I need my space and I want my time. And, you know, and, and that's completely the opposite. And, then, and, hey? and we do deserve to sit now and then. Yeah. God wants us to rest. <laughs> so we need to separate from those things, but we also have to separate ourselves from the world. You have to make that separation. You have to decide that building the church, living for the glory of God, is worth your time and your effort. And that you won't mind separating yourself from non-believers i.e. I don't mean that badly, I don't mean you never talk to them, but I mean you don't get yoked together. This is the lesson where Paul says don't be yoked with unbelievers. Okay, and love means, this sort of love means that you are prepared to speak the truth for the sake of the other person. Speak the truth in love, he talks about that in Ephesians, and do it even, he did this in this letter even though he knew it had caused pain. Sorry, he wrote in the first letter for them, even though, though he knew it would cause them pain. And in this letter, in chapter 7, he says, I'm glad that it brought them <coughs> to the sorrow that leads to repentance. Yes. But even though it caused pain, he was not afraid to speak the truth. So, can you see what he's doing here? Just, I, I will be quick, because I know it's half past eight. Um, well, I won't be quick, but, you know, I'll be quicker. Um, what he's doing is he's making an atmosphere of unconditional love and complete assurance that you will be changed. And then he's coming in and saying, so on the basis of that, then be reconciled to God, live in harmony with God, because everything's going to go much smoother if you do that. Mm. You know, do what you know to do. Mm. Keep your eyes on things that are not seen. Don't, don't get bogged down in this life. Keep your eyes on the horizon, what's coming, what's happening. The best is yet to come. Trust that. Trust that. When you're in despair, when you think everything's going against you, do what it says in Psalm 42. He doesn't say this, but I'm saying this. Do what it says in Psalm 42. He said, the writer says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait on God. Hope in God. Trust in God. Speak to your own soul about the things that are causing you despair. And you only do that if you trust the God that you're talking about. You can only do that. If you know God and trust him, mm -hmm. making disciples, we have to make help other people to come into a fuller knowledge of who God is. And we can only do that if we know who God is.
And all of it takes time and sacrifice and, and just the desire, really, to live for God. So, how is it possible to continue in confidence that the people you're discipling will actually be transformed? What are you basing that on? God's promises. God's promises. Yeah, what else? God's promises. The fact that if God's there, something's happening, even though I can't see it. Something's happening if God lives in me or in you, in Eve. Something's happening even though I don't see anything happening on the outside. Something's happening. And even if that goes on for a long time, how can you be confident? Because he's been patient with me. Exactly. He's been patient with me for a long time, so I know I'm going to keep my eyes on the unseen reality. And I'm going to live in the truth of Romans 8, verse 28 to 30, which we'll end on. Well, that and Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, but Romans 8, 28. Um, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I mean, are there any better words, really, ever written? So, Father, we just thank you. We thank you that even death cannot separate us from your love that's found in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that anyone who has put their trust in Jesus, everyone who has put their trust in Jesus will be saved, no matter the circumstances of their life, no matter the behaviour in their life, no matter all of the stuff that happens, Lord God, that we looking on can't understand and, and never work out. Lord God, your promise is that you will, you will finish what you began in each of us. Lord, that is just an amazing thing. and We thank you so much for it. We thank you that through death itself we will not be separated from your love which is found in Christ. So I praise you, Lord, and I thank you. And I, I, yeah, we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, would you say Philippians 1.6 as yeah. well? Yeah. I'll um, see you in two weeks. <coughs> yeah.